Today's passage comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 1. Hear God's word for us. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he said his... He's, uh-huh, uh, this is going to be great, guys. It's going to be so good. I'm going to start over. Today's passage comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you continue to speak. Thank you that you are a good father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are an extraordinary Lord and Savior. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your amazing mediation. God, we ask that you would, in your triune beauty, guide us this morning, guide us in this time, that we would better understand your word and so better understand you, and so no deeper intimacy in our walk with you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, a question for you. What can turn a city street, a nice countryside path, or a cozy bedroom into a really scary place? Darkness. When the light fades, our fears feel more real. And when fear takes over, the darkness wins. We're continuing in a new series where we're walking through the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, the culmination of the biblical story. When life feels its cruelest and its darkest, we need to remember that God is still working. When it feels the saddest, we need to remember, as we saw last week, that Jesus is the one who makes everything sad, untrue. And he's doing something unique in and through his church. You see, what we need to understand in moments like these, when the darkness feels like it's creeping in, is we need to understand that light is actually most needed in the darkest of moments. And God has positioned you and me as followers of Jesus to be that light. Because we know there's no shortage of darkness today, is there? We have injustice, abuse, contempt, idolatry, immorality, greed, deceit, you name it. The list could go on and it feels like the darkness is growing or it's being more revealed than it has in times past. And just like the church in the first century, Jesus calls you and me and us together as the church to be a lampstand, a shining light in the dark world. And here's our big idea as we walk through chapters 2 and 3. Our big idea is this, our light is most needed in the darkest moments. Why? And what are two of the major influences on the brilliance of our light together? 
That's what we're going to unpack as we look at these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, the various lampstands that give us guidance here in Kansas City today in the 21st century. So let's take a look. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. So first, why? Why is light so crucial? Why does Jesus call us to shine in a dark world? Here's why. Light makes a better world. It makes a better world. The theme of light combating darkness is an ancient theme. It finds its anchor all the way in the beginning of Scripture. And we're going to tease out that theme a little bit here in a moment. But just as a side note, as you're reading the book of Revelation, here's a helpful tip. Whenever you find a theme or an image, I want you to ask yourself the question, is this a broader biblical theme that actually is slowly unpacked and gathers different nuance and angles as you read the biblical narrative? You see, Revelation, it plays off of, as well as develops themes that are throughout the biblical story. And these themes are meant to be meditated on, to be chewed on, to see the interconnections and how all of this is reaching its culmination in Christ and what he's come to do. So here's a little tip. Strangely enough, one of the greatest tools to reading Revelation is reading the whole Bible a lot of times. One of, the, one of the most helpful tools to reading Revelation is actually reading a lot of the Bible a lot of times. Because think about this. John and his hearers, their imagination has been formed, informed by the Old Testament and its various thematic movements and its key figures. They would have been connecting the dots as they're hearing of these visions and these dreams. And so it would take only an image like a lampstand for their minds to begin to explode with meaning and bringing together all that's been recorded throughout the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus, and so guide them in their own vocation and their role as the church. So, for example, if we go to Genesis chapter 1, first book in the Bible, verses 3 and 4, the first word of creation is, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. When you look across the prophetic literature, often redemption is pictured as the dawning of light after living in a land of darkness and the shadow of death. Isaiah chapter 9 is a brilliant example of that. Jesus himself says in John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, light of life. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, Jesus says of his followers... You are the light of the world. Then in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine before others. The Apostle Paul, later in biblical history, who always leans into Jesus' teaching, when in prison, writes to the church in Philippi who is experiencing persecution. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, listen to this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And then just one more reference point. Look at the end of Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. We read, those who are with Christ in the end, the Lord will be their light. So we who have received the light of Christ are to be these lampstands, standing together, shining together, showing the world as it is. Now, light has various functions throughout creation and also is leveraged with various functions throughout the biblical story. But one of the primary purposes of light is to show things for what they really are. 
Because in the dark, what happens? Our imaginations turn the pitter-patter of wind outside our windows into monsters, right? In the dark, our anxiety can ramp up telling us there's no way we're going to get out of this mess. In the dark, our disorientation kind of leaves us groping, just looking for a place to stand. But Jesus says those who don't embrace him actually live in the dark all the time because only he reveals reality in its fullness. And here in Revelation, Jesus has a plan to shine a light on a dark world through his church. And so wherever we are as the church, as light, we're called to make a better world. We should turn the switch on falsehood and reveal the truth. We should bring out the color and the beauty of the world for more to see. We should actually cultivate environments where goodness and virtue are seen and celebrated. So let me ask you this question. If that's true, if this is what we're called to as these lampstands, do people see your life as a light? Are we working together, even as a church, to be more brilliant during this time? That's the why. Light makes a better world. But what influences our light? Two things. And we're going to look at the churches in chapters 2 and 3 in a couple different case studies and see two primary influences on our light as a church. Here's the first influence on our light as a church. Our light goes dim when we compromise. Our light goes dim when we compromise. When we look more like the world, when we're drawn in by the world's values, when we act more like the world, when we embrace more of the world and how it carries out its means and seek its ends at the expense of what the kingdom of God is calling us to, then Jesus actually fades into the background and so does our light. Jesus says as much to each one of the churches here in Revelation 2 and 3. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Unless you turn, not just name it, but actually turn from it and turn back to me your first love, your witness will dissipate. So why, here's the deal. The question I was wrestling with is, why is compromise so alluring, right? Because nobody's like walking around saying, hey, I love to compromise my faith. I love to compromise my walk with you. No, nobody's like bragging about that. So, so what is it, what's so alluring about compromise? Two things. The first thing, it's hard to keep shining when light threatens the status quo. It's hard to keep shining when light threatens the status quo. A good case study for this is to look at the church in Pergamum. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And one of the issues there with the church in Pergamum is that they were eating food sacrificed to idols. Um, now, some of you may be thinking, really, out of the grand scheme of things, that's the issue or even one of the issues? Well, eating food sacrificed to idols in a work context was just as common as, say, brushing your teeth before you went to bed or a national anthem being played before a sporting event. This is just the way life was. And so in this context in the first century, idolatry, politics, and economic life were explicitly intertwined with various practices in the ancient world. And today, they're a little more implicitly intertwined. But then it was so explicit with rituals and activities that even business meetings might begin 
by offering a sacrifice to a patron god, patron god or goddess, seeking their blessing upon your endeavors. And so being the light in that context meant showing another way to live. It meant actually not engaging in these religious rituals that worshiped a false god. And so when you abstained from the meal, you were communicating that your allegiance aligned with the one true God. It meant actually not engaging in normal Roman business practice. Now, this, from anyone's perspective in the first century, felt extremely threatening to the Roman world. I mean, you can imagine the pushback from fellow employees, right? Aren't you pro-business? Don't you care about our community and our nation? You're going to anger the gods. Are you an atheist or something? What do you mean you don't offer a sacrifice to a god to bless us? This guy doesn't care about us. He doesn't care about our nation. He doesn't belong. And slowly you could experience or begin to imagine what these early Christians were afraid of, were nervous about, the ostracization, the lack of opportunity, the lack of promotion, maybe the lack of networking, and maybe eventually the lack of a job. Well, this is true for us today, too. Now, you may not experience, you know, a pagan ritual of sacrificing a goat to a god in the middle of a business interaction, but we have difficult beliefs and doctrines around human sexuality, around the trustworthiness of God's word, around the care for the vulnerable and the marginalized that can actually tempt us to remain quiet, or to ignore those facets of our beliefs and just instead maintain the status quo or the current temperature of the cultural moment. But it's not just our beliefs. There are various business practices and broader practices when we can turn profit into our God or our ultimate, right? Instead of understanding a biblical framework of flourishing and pursuing that as Christians that has a more robust bottom line of profit, planet, and people that is much more robust and brings about a category of making decisions that's more than just how we increase profit. But listen, whenever this happens, whenever we begin to compromise, whenever we allow the threat of the status quo and the brilliance of the light to suddenly kind of cause us to turn down the light a little bit, so does the influence of the church and our witness that we're called to actually shine. So that's the first thing. It's hard to keep shining when light threatens the status quo. Number two, it's hard to keep shining when darkness looks like relief. When it feels, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, and it just feels like that's the place to finally rest, right? A good case study is to look at the church in Thyatira in chapter 2. Specifically zeroing in on verses 20 through 29, there's this issue, as we see in verses 20 and 21, of false teaching. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, we don't know if this person's name was actually Jezebel or this is like, once again, one of those themes where they're pointing back to a Jezebel who brought ruin to Israel. And what we do know is that they're teaching through, through dreams and visions um, an antithetical kind of witness to the gospel. More than likely, it was a framework seeking to kind of, quote-unquote, lighten the load of the Christian 
witness. It would have gone something like this. Hey, Jesus isn't really saying you have to have no cultural pressures. He's died for that. It's all under grace. The Christian life doesn't have to be that hard, okay? It's already been taken care of. Didn't Jesus say he came to give us life and life abundant? Lean in. You don't have to buck the norms. This is how we'll actually win more people. By just leaning in and embracing or accommodating to the surrounding culture. Listen, false assurance always makes false teaching look like relief. But it slowly destroys the influence of the church. You see, shining like light was to reject this, actually this false encouragement to just go with the flow. And to hold fast to what Jesus has indeed taught. To not just look at his grace as a transaction that I got from him way over there and now I can do my life the way I want it. No, it is an intimate relationship that actually reorders our loves and reorders the way we live in the context which we find ourselves that often is in contradiction to various values of the world. So what's the outcome when you actually live that way? Well, it's the same as it was in Pergamum. It won't be easy because Jesus has called us to a cross and not to a couch, right? This is something that's heavy, that's burdensome. And yet simultaneously when we get to do it with Jesus, it feels light. This is the paradox of discipleship with him. And we can give in to false teaching too. Allured by false assurance and idol worship that just fans the flame of our cultural desires rather than what Jesus longs to do in challenging the brokenness of every culture. So, for example, Christians can often talk about a false assurance of wealth and the idolatry of money, and this often shows up in what's called the prosperity gospel. And this is important because for many of us who may even, quote-unquote, poo-poo the prosperity gospel, our lives are driven by money. That's actually our God, not Jesus. What does that look like? To realize that you've been masquerading as a follower of Jesus, but actually worshiping Money. It shows up in our lifestyles when we try to match certain dynamics that we see in the world. And so we're constantly discontent. It shows up in our inability to be generous financially, where a tithe in the U.S. Christian structure is nearly non-existent by so many. Because we constantly feel like we need to consume or stay with the world's status quo rather than live a life of generosity and have a greater feeling of enough. And then our very matrix for how we make decisions. Our primary decisions come from sometimes how we can make the most money. And that being the only category on how we make decisions. It's not a bad component, but when it's the main driver that always is the final, you know, the buck stops with where I can make the most money. Rather than where does God have me, even if it means less money. Then we've revealed really who is our God. Now, another realm of idolatry that's on the fore is politics and the political gospel, right? Caitlin Scheiss, in her just-released book, The Liturgy of Par uh, Politics by InterVarsity Press, she brilliantly writes, Idols make promises of protection and provision, and they require allegiance. Their worshipers don't merely love them too much. They submit to these idols and worship them. And then she says, Political partic participation has a unique ability to inspire idolatry. And people, precisely because it is so often involves promises of protection and provision, requires sacrifices, legitimizes authority, and inspires submission and worship. You know, I heard a Christian the other day say, we were on the phone together, and they said, you know, the world feels like a crazy place right now, but I'm holding on to hope because I watched the 
fill-in-the-blank national convention. I'm not going to tell you which one that person said because it doesn't matter. She could have said the Democratic National Convention or the Republican National Convention. Doesn't matter. What she was using was the language of idolatry. She had placed her hope that life was going to be okay because a particular party had a decent national convention. So many of us can be so tempted to have an affair with an elephant, the Republican Party, or a donkey, the Democratic Party, where Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is just disgusted. We need to be aware of our political idols and how they're calling us for these promises of protection, of provision, of deliverance, of hope that require worship and allegiance in ways that actually contradict the kingdom of God at times. It's not without accident that actually if you look throughout the history of the nation of Israel, their idolatry is always linked up with the national framework. Beware the false teaching that lures you toward nationalism and slaps Jesus' name on it as your primary identity and source of hope. It can feel like a promise of relief because you're exhausted in the midst of so many other pressures, but it's empty and it's compromise and Jesus won't have any of it. You see, these first century Christians were not morons. It's just culture and the culture of compromise is so alluring and it takes on the language and the clothing and the dynamics of every generation and we must be shrewd and diligent in how compromise is tempting us. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Well, number two, our light shines brightest in self-sacrifice. In every case, Jesus' call to ultimate faithfulness is a willingness to die. Not to take up arms, not to shout down the other, not to force our perspective, but to die. Think about this. Once again, we point to Jesus' example. When the Roman guard came to arrest Jesus, and in the process, one of Jesus' disciples cut off this guy's ear. What does Jesus do? He heals the ear of the person who is coming to arrest him. And he looks at his disciples and he says this, speaking of violence, is not my way. Instead, he's arrested peacefully and then he's crucified. The same is true and this theme continues to carry forth in the book of Revelation. The shortest letter to any church without any correction is the church in Smyrna. Jesus has one word for them in the midst of their suffering. And it's this in verse 10. Do not fear, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. I mean, as hard as that may be for some of us to hear, it's clear that for Jesus, our light shines brightest when we are willing to give up our lives, our preferences, our comforts for him and for others. For some around the world, that may literally mean martyrdom. Nothing made the darkness tremble like the early martyrs and like our brothers and sisters who continue to lose their lives today. Because in martyrdom... It's a brilliant light that reveals the ugliness of the abuse of power. It reveals the falsehood of the way of the Rome, of Rome's status quo, and its false Pax Romana that was peace for all, but really it was peace for a limited few at the expense of most. It revealed the power of the gospel, and it revealed the truth of Jesus like nothing else. Tertullian, an early follower of Jesus, said that the blood of the saints was the seedbed of the gospel, right? This early martyrdom was often the spaces where the gospel was spreading the quickest. This isn't just true in persecution, but also in famine. 
Rodney Stark, in his The Rise of Christianity, talks of how in the mid-3rd century, a terrible plague devastated the Roman Empire. And St. Cyprian, he was a Christian leader at the time, estimated that 5,000 people died a day, a day, in Rome along, or alone from this plague. People thought the world was ending in the 3rd century. 5,000 people a day. History tells us that the Roman emperor of the time, Decius, blamed the Christians for this misfortune, right? They were an easy scapegoat. But that theory was undermined by two inconvenient facts. One, Christians were dying also. And then number two, where everyone else in Rome fled from the fear of death, the Christians actually stayed and cared for the sick, including their pagan neighbors. You see, for some of us, it might mean martyrdom. But for every single one of us who seek to follow Jesus, it means self-sacrifice. This is how we overcome. This is how we shine the light of Christ. And I want to ask, is that the framework we come with to life? Is that what the framework you come with to politics, to community, to finances, to relationships? Because that's where the light shines the brightest. You know, in World War II, Britain imposed blackout conditions during the German Blitz so that the bombers wouldn't have any light to guide them in their nighttime bombings of Britain's cities. People had blackout curtains over their windows, special covers that constructed kind of the, the, the light on the, the cars so that it shined specifically down. They painted over certain painted, white painted areas. Do you want me to stop and restart? Yeah, let's do that. I have, I'll, I'll restart the illustration. Like, why, why do that? You know, why, 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 why make it weird? Are we good? Oh, now part two. <laughs> In World War II, Britain imposed blackout conditions during the German Blitz so that bombers wouldn't have any light to guide them in their nighttime bombings of Britain's cities. People had blackout curtains over their windows, there were special covers um, that constructed over their car headlights so that light wouldn't be seen from above. They came out and they actually painted the white, you know, dotted lines on the roads so that those wouldn't be seen by reflection. Blackout regulation compliance was carefully monitored in London. No one could just do it because they didn't want to have blackout curtains. Everybody had to do it to care for everybody else. And under these blackout conditions, even a small light peeking through would be visible and would seem especially bright in contrast to the darkness around. You see, today it may feel like the darkness is growing, doesn't it? In so many ways because of so much that's going on in our world, in our country, and in our lives. But listen, this is not to make us afraid. Darkness is no match for light. Whenever light comes into a room, the darkness flees. Light is significantly superior to darkness. And for those who hold fast to Jesus, the light of the world, this is an opportunity for those who have the eyes to see, for those who are being apocalypsed what's actually happening in the world right now. It's in these moments that the smallest bit of light from you and from me and from us as a little campus here in downtown Kansas City, that our light is needed most in these dark moments. The question that is raised for you and for me and for us is will we choose light? Will we be a lampstand here in KC? Or will we fall to compromise? 
Will we give in to idolatry? Or will we embrace self-sacrifice like our Lord and Savior has called us to do and has modeled for us to do? May our lives and our unity shine for the sake of our city and the sake of Christ's name, which we bear. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. I can't say this enough that I would feel like a man in darkness just reaching out for something, tripping over myself, even more than I currently do at times, if it were not for your word, that you are a God who does long to reveal and so see human beings flourish if we will but listen and have the eyes to see. So God, will you guide us to be a beacon of light here in downtown and across Kansas City. May we be the lampstand that shines forth the gospel that more might come to know you and rest in you. That, Lord Jesus, you on your throne would be exalted high. That is our cry and our longing. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so now we come to a meal that shows the onlooking world who is actually at the center of our supply and in whom we trust and so provides all our nourishment, all of our direction. He is our king. He is our Lord, whom we give unfiltered allegiance. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And here at the Lord's Supper, we remember his death by common broken bread being broken as a symbol of his body broken for us and through common juice, his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have these elements available to you, I'd encourage you in this moment to gather family and friends around and to partake together in remembrance of Christ. But before we do, let us remember the truth of what has been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim him, not another idol, not a form of compromise. You proclaim him until he comes. Whenever you're ready, taste and see that the Lord is good.